tonight we're going to be talking about the idea of treasure and where you find your treasure. And I, th I think for me, so I've looked back over my life and tried to analyze themes of my life. The treasure hunt is one of the, the great themes of my life. I love looking for treasure, whether it's reading old books, trying to find great quotes or great theology that I don't find in modern books, or great hymn texts. I love to look through old hymnals all the time, finding hymn texts that have dropped out of use. I even love to shop. I love to shop a lot more than my wife. Because for me, it's a treasure hunt to see if I can find that treasure that nobody else has noticed that's at a great bargain. I love antique stores. I love all that. When I was in, I guess, middle school, beer can collecting was really huge. And I was really into beer can collecting. I had a thousand different beer cans on my walls. Had to make special shells for and everything. And me and my friends would go often out into the woods looking for old dumps that we could dig through and try and find rusty old beer cans. And we'd try and clean them up and put them on our wells. There's just always been this kind of thing. I've always collected things. And one of my favorite TV shows, which I still don't understand why my wife doesn't love this show, because she loves any kind of reality show that involves someone's story. She just loves those kind of shows. Um, but she doesn't love my favorite show, which is the Antique Roadshow. Do I have any Antique Roadshow fans in here? Okay, just a few. You guys don't know what you're missing. Do you understand the concept of the show? They go to a city and people bring things out of their attic or things that have been handed down to them, and then these experts will appraise this stuff that they bring in. And I always love it when, they, you know, when it's some like old guy who has no idea what he has. And in so many ways, you know, the passage that we're going to look at tonight, Jesus compares the kingdom of God to finding a great treasure. And I think maybe we need to get our hearts around the idea of what is it like to discover that you found a great treasure? What does, that, what does that do to you? I think so much of the time, we basically try to keep our hearts from being excited about anything so that we don't get disappointed. And so it's one of the things that I love about the Antique Roadshow is it just gets, I cry at this show all the time. I don't cry at a lot of things, but this show does it to me. And um, especially this clip. Now, you, I actually, you know, um, it hasn't aired yet, so I couldn't show you a clip, but they finally found a million-dollar item. Somebody brought something to the show that ended up being appraised for over a million dollars. It was a jade bowl that some, uh, some person's father had bought in China in the 40s when they were stationed there as a military liaison. It turned out that it had this little stamp on the bottom that said it was made for the emperor himself, and it was worth over a million dollars. I wish I had that video clip, but this one is still pretty cool. Um, so hit it, Zach. See if you so, all involved. It's an extraordinary piece of art. It's extremely rare. It is the most important thing that's come into the roadshow that I've seen. Um, do you have a sense at all of what we're looking at here in terms of value? I haven't a clue. Are, uh, are you a wealthy man, Ted? No. Well, sir, um, I'm, I'm still a little nervous here, I have to tell you. Uh, on a really bad day, this textile would be worth $350,000. On a good day, it's about a half a million dollars. Oh, my God. You had no I, idea. I had no idea. I was just laying on the back of a chair. Well, sir, you have a national treasure. Wow. A national treasure. Gee. When you walked in with this, I just about died. Congratulations. Gee. Congratulations. I can't believe this. Now, the value of this uh, that I'm giving is, is not using the Kit Carson 
provenance. Provenance is sometimes very difficult to ascertain. If, if we could do research on this and we could prove with a, without a reasonable doubt that Kit Carson did actually own this, um, the value would increase again, hmm. maybe 20%. Wow. Can't believe it. My grandmother, you know, were poor farmers. They didn't, uh, she had, uh, her, her foster father had started some gold mills and, and, you know, discovered gold and everything, but there was no wealth. No wealth in the family at all. Well, I can't. Congratulations. Thank you. Gee, well, yeah, I'm, I'm amazed. I'm flabbergasted. <laughs> I love that quote. I love that. Um, so basically, you know, his grandmother's foster father had been given that blanket by Kit Carson, which was kind of a cool thing, but he had no idea. Like, did you hear him say, it was just laying on a chair in our house. It's just laying on a chair. And he has a national treasure worth half a million dollars. And the Bible has a great treasure story in uh, Matthew 13 that we're going to look at. It's actually a very short little story. Um, but we're going to read it. It's in Matthew 13, 44 through 46. It's actually two, two parables within three verses. Um, but it's important that they go together, and I'm going to talk about that in just a minute. Let's look at this passage. Jesus describing the kingdom of God as being like a treasure. Jesus said this, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these these words for these two brief stories. We pray, Lord, that you would help open up our hearts to receive this truth that your kingdom is like a great treasure. And we pray that you would show us what that means and why that's so important for us if we would learn about you and about life in your kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder um, what you have or what is so valuable or beautiful to you? Can you imagine anything so beautiful, so valuable, that if you found it with joy, you would go and sell everything you had just to possess it? It's hard for me to get my arms around something like that. I mean, there have been times when I've collected things and I thought, man, it would be really great to have this to complete my collection. But the idea that I would find something so valuable that I would sell everything I had. And notice he says, not begrudgingly, but it says, with joy. He was thrilled to sell everything he had that he might possess this. Now, it's sort of a, kind of a strange story in some ways. Oh, I, I noticed I put, kept on that outline, this, this funny story. There was a, a time when I was collecting beer cans when I was pretty motivated to get beer cans that I wanted. And I remember, this was middle school, right? My next door neighbor had a beer can that I really wanted. So me and this friend of mine broke into his house to steal it. It was really kind of a stupid thing to do because, of course, he knew that somebody had stolen the beer can. And he came over to my house, and I had put it up on my shelf. And, of course, he went right to it, pulled it off the shelf, looked on the bottom, and he'd written in a marker his own name, right? So I got busted for that. But 
I, I don't know. I didn't sell everything I had. Yet, granted, that was kind of a stupid thing to do. But sell everything you had to possess a treasure. Now, so, you know, you look at this passage. What I want you to understand, Jesus is not teaching us that um, you should rip off some poor guy who has a treasure in his field he doesn't know about. Um, it's harder for us to enter into what's going on culturally because the laws were different in Jesus' day. People didn't have banks that they trusted. So if it seemed that war was coming or an invasion was coming or it seemed that you had something valuable that you wanted to protect, generally you would put it in a clay pot and you would bury it. Problem with that way of doing things is that often people died and then nobody knew that that stuff was buried. They find this kind of stuff all the time. That's what happened to the Dead Sea Scrolls, right? They got put in these jars and hidden in caves, and then, you know, 2,000 years later, some shepherd boy finds them going after a lost sheep. This kind of stuff happens all the time. It's a very realistic picture. And in Jesus' day, the law was such that if you found a treasure, it was yours. It didn't matter even if it wasn't your field, though this guy wants to make absolutely sure so he buys the field to secure it. But um, in, in, in the law in Israel at this time, possession was ten-tenths. <laughs> you know, you can say, like, possession is nine-tenths of the law. In Israel, possession was ten-tenths. If you found it, you were entitled to it. You got it. All right? So that's a very realistic picture. It happened all the time in the ancient world, um, in, in the, the culture that Jesus is speaking to. And what's interesting, though, is there are two stories, lest we sort of get the idea that Jesus is maybe teaching us how to be shrewd and, um, you know, go make sure you buy the field so that you can make sure the treasure's yours. That's not really the point of the parable. The point of the parable, I think, is clarified when we see the two stories together have a common theme, which is the kingdom of heaven is like a great treasure. And what's interesting, the two stories show us sometimes the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that you stumble upon. And I'm sure there are people in this room that would say, God came into my life when I wasn't looking for him. It just sort of happened when I was looking for something else or when I wasn't even really looking for anything. I was just about my normal business. I mean, we don't know, but most scholars think that the picture Jesus is painting here is of a day laborer digging some, you know, doing some digging for work and finding this thing, just going about his normal job, and he finds this treasure that changes his life. And some of you know what that's like. But for others, you've been looking for God or looking for something bigger than yourself. You're, like, you're more like the second story, the merchant who's looking for fine pearls. But when he finds this one, he knows He knows that he's hit upon something that's so much greater than anything he could have imagined. And he has to have it. And this is a very interesting thing in thinking about the kingdom of God. Sometimes it comes unlooked for. Sometimes God stirs you up to seek after it earnestly. But it doesn't matter. For both of these stories, there's this eureka moment. There's this epiphany is, is the, kind of the biblical word to use. There's this, I see it kind of moment. And that's a very important thing to understand about what does it mean to be part of the kingdom of God? What does it mean to be in this relationship with God that the Bible describes as being part of the kingdom of God? Um, earlier this semester, I talked about uh, the parable where Jesus describes it as a great party. Here he describes it as being like finding a great treasure, And it has this this idea that you know it 
when you hit upon it. It changes the course of your life, is what the Bible says finding the kingdom of God is like, right? It's a hidden treasure, and those who find it regard themselves as blessed rather than as those who have earned a wage they deserved. This is what it's like to come upon the kingdom of God. You recognize that I didn't deserve this, that this thing is so much greater, so much more beautiful than anything I could have ever gotten that I have to give up everything to get it. It's worth sacrificing everything for it. And again, it's fascinating. And I I love that Jesus put that little phrase in there, with joy, he went and sold everything. So many people think that Christianity is like stoicism, that you have to sacrifice everything. You just have to to suck it up and do it. You just gotta, you gotta give up everything that would be fun or that would bring you joy in your life. You gotta just cut it out. And if you do it severe enough, Maybe God will bless you, or maybe God will look kindly upon you. But Christianity is not stoicism, where you just begrudgingly have to cut things out of your life. Oh, I'm not saying that there's not a fight that goes on in fighting against sin. But the point Jesus is making here is that the kingdom of God is such a treasure that when you see it and you recognize it, with joy you want to sacrifice everything to possess it. You see the difference? I don't know how many of you think about the kingdom of God that way, or if I think about the kingdom of God that way. So often I think more in terms of what I can't do. But that's not the emphasis of this story at all, is it? The story emphasizes the fact that when you see this and you recognize its value, nothing seems too much to sacrifice. And that, I think, is one of the keys. Do we recognize what we have? Do we recognize what we have and what we have offered to us in Jesus and the gospel? Do we think of it as the kind of treasure that with joy we would sacrifice everything? Or do we focus more on the things that we've had to give up since we became a Christian? You know, sometimes I hear people give testimonies, and you've probably heard testimonies like this, where people, you know, like tell these glorious stories about all the things that they used to do and that they had to give up. And, and you listen to the story and you get the sense that, like, okay, they're convinced that they had to give these things up, but they really don't have a sense that Jesus is more beautiful than these things they gave up. Those are, those are weird testimonies, honestly. They don't seem to fit the picture that Jesus gives here. You ever heard somebody tell a story like that where they just kind of so glorify all the stuff that they used to be into but now I have Jesus and now everything's great and you just don't really believe them because the way they tell about the things that they have to give up, it's, it's, it doesn't seem like they've had this experience of seeing what the gospel is truly worth and thus with joy sacrificing that you might have it, right? But Jesus says being in the kingdom is like this experience. Now think about these guys. When they find this thing, it changes everything about them, particularly changes their value system. The things that they used to consider valuable no longer seem so valuable. Is it expensive? Is this this treasure, was the field expensive? Well, I think it depends on what it is. Is $500 a lot to spend on a meal? Sure. Is $500 a lot of money for a new car? No, 
It's a steal. So the cost that you, that you have to pay to come into the kingdom of God, there is certainly a cost to come into the kingdom of God, but it pales in comparison to what you get. And that's really what Jesus is trying to, to challenge us with here, is to think about, are we rightly reckoning the value of what we have in the kingdom of God? Right? One of my favorite uh, books that I read when I was your age, I stumbled upon in a used bookstore, was a book simply called Holiness. And I thought, that seems like a good book. I need to read a book on holiness. I should read this book. It was by a guy named J.C. Ryle, who was an Anglican bishop back in the 19th century. It was one of the first old books that I ever read that just really got me hooked on reading old Christian books. I just think there's a depth to them that most modern books don't have. But one of the things that he says in that book, holiness, is a religion that costs you nothing is worth nothing. And I remember reading those words and being like, wow. What really has Christianity cost me at this point? What does it really cost me to be a Christian? Not that I need to go out and look for opportunities to be martyred. But what, but what did it really cost me? What does it really cost you to be a Christian? I think so often we're trying to have our cake and eat it too. We want everybody to love us. I remember very specifically in high school one time, I was involved in Young Life in high school, and um, our Young Life leader, I remember kind of walking through the halls of the school with him, and there was a guy who was a couple years older than me, very popular guy, and, um, you know, our, our leader, and he was in our, our group, but he was always sort of like sporadic in his attendance and, you know, just having a hard time following Jesus. And I remember, um, you know, our leader kind of saying, do you see that guy? It's like, yeah. It's like, he's never going to be able to follow Jesus until he's willing for some people to hate him. He wants to follow Jesus, but he's not willing for anybody to think poorly of him. And you just can't do that. You know, guys? The end of the book of Hebrews has this fascinating place where it says that Jesus was crucified outside of the city gate, basically on the trash heap, the place of shame. You know what it says? It doesn't just say, aren't you glad that he went out there for us? It says we have to go there to be with him. That if we follow a crucified Savior, we shouldn't expect to get the applause of the world. But I, I don't know. Do you think that it's worth it? If you had to choose the applause of the world or life with a crucified Savior, which would we pick? I remember um, years ago, really when I first was doing RUF here at Belmont, I remember there was this girl who was really struggling with a guy that she had no business being with. He just wanted to get in her pants, honestly. She knew it. Everybody knew it. And she got getting closer and closer. She hadn't crossed this line yet, but she was so close to it. And I remember sitting with her and talking with her and it was so obvious. It was almost like this picture just appeared before my eyes. It was like, if I could have explained to her, it's like, well, I did explain to her, but it didn't really matter. You've got, you've, imagine you've got a scale, and you've got Jesus here, and you've got this guy and what he thinks of you here. And the scale is like this. Jesus is of no value. Do you know the word for glory in Hebrew and in Greek? Do you know what it, what it means? Weighty. Weighty. The thing you find your glory in is the thing that's most weighty in your life. What is the thing that has the most weight in your life? The most value in your life? What is your treasure? What is your treasure? What does following Jesus cost you? You have to ask yourself, 
Has my life been interrupted by an encounter with Jesus? Right? Following Jesus is never like that silly old Doobie Brothers song. Jesus is just all right with me. Nobody that met the real Jesus ever had that response. Right? They either wanted to worship him and follow him, or they wanted to kill him. And I, I know, like, we live in a, in a culture in which so many people like Jesus. They don't like Christians, but they generally think Jesus was a pretty good guy. But being in the kingdom of God is different than just liking Jesus. Matter of fact, being in the kingdom of God often makes you want to hate Jesus. Probably some of you need to admit to Jesus that you hate him before you can start actually loving him. Do you know what I mean by that? Is that too strange a thing? In other words, Jesus wants to interrupt your life in all kinds of ways. He says that having an encounter with him, bringing, coming into the kingdom, is the kind of thing that's similar to the experience of finding a treasure, and it changes everything. You're never the same after that. That's what he's saying here, right? I also think it's, it's really important if, if you are a Christian and you're following Jesus or trying to follow Jesus, it's important to ask yourself, do I feel like I got a treasure? Did I, get, did I get a great deal? Or did I get a raw deal? And if you feel that you've gotten a raw deal, all I can say is you don't understand what Jesus has done for you. You don't understand the weight of it. And I pray that you would plead with him to open your eyes to see what he's done. But that may be, begin by saying to him, I'm not sure that you were such a good deal or that this was such a great treasure. I feel like I've sacrificed a lot and I don't feel like I've gotten much at all. And you may need to go work that out before God and be honest with him. I, I, the last thing I want to say about the kingdom being like this experience is this. It's, it's really a key to fighting against temptation is to being able to, to evaluate what your treasure is. Again, like I told you about that story, it was important for me to see, and eventually, the good news of that story is eventually, she came out of the fog, but not before she'd done real damage to her life. But she did come out of the fog and eventually realize that she'd considered Jesus as having no weight, no value. There's a place actually in Isaiah 53 where it says that, that we considered him of no value. But Jesus came and lived and died for people that considered him of no value. This is the good news of the gospel. Jesus is the treasure we're sacrificing all to possess. He's full of glory and beauty that we want to not only possess, but to enter into somehow. I think, you know, sometimes you'll talk to artists and they'll talk to you about um, this, this idea. I remember um, talking to this artist, Maku Fujimura, who's a an artist up in New York City, paints, you know, fairly abstract paintings. But I remember talking to him about, about how do you picture glory. And he, he would talk about how, for him, he, he never feels that he's representing glory, but he's, through his art, trying to grab it, trying to reach it, and it always eludes his grasp. Which is an interesting thing, because a lot of, I think a lot of Christians think that, that art is merely just propaganda, that you fully understand what you want to say and then you just say it in an artistic way. But so many artists that I know will tell you that they're really trying to explore and to reach for something that eludes their grasp. C.S. Lewis says it so beautifully um, in his uh, essay called The Weight of Glory, 
which would be well worth you tracking down and reading. He says this, We do not merely want to see beauty, though God knows even that is bounty enough. We want something else which can hardly be put into words, to be united with the beauty we see, to pass into it, to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it, to become part of it. Beauty. Beauty. And then you go down to the bottom of that quote um, where the underlining is. He says, at present we are in the, on the outside of the world, the wrong side of the door. We cannot mingle with the splendors we see, but all the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that it will not always be so. Someday, God willing, we shall get in. That gives you some insights of what the Narnia stories are about too, right? About the idea of getting in. So, why don't we see this kind of joyful abandon in our lives? where we just joyfully want to sacrifice that we could possess Christ? Why don't we taste more of the freedom and the longing that, that Lewis talks about when he says we see this beauty and we want to enter into it? And I think there's a couple answers that, that are worth considering. The first is, I think a lot of us, like myself, have a fear of spiritual intimacy. We would much rather like, have God in a safe, controllable place in our lives. Sometimes we do that through, um, you know, trying to understand everything so perfectly so that we won't be surprised by anything. I remember, I very vividly remember when I became a Christian in ninth grade, I remember thinking, well, you know, my mom is, is pretty into Jesus and I don't want to be like that. She's kind of really, really weird in my opinion at this point, okay? And so I think what I need to do is I need to make sure that I don't read my Bible every day. Because I know one of the things she does and thinks is very important is read the Bible every day. I'm going to read the Bible maybe twice a week because I really just don't want this Jesus thing to get out of hand. Right? I don't know. Maybe I'm the only weirdo that's thought like that. It really wasn't just laziness. I very specifically said, okay, I'm going to kind of try this out a little bit, but I'm not going to throw myself into this thing. I'm going to maintain control. I'm going to have a backup plan. I'm going to have an escape clause. Fear of spiritual intimacy. Lewis talks about this himself. He says, I I come into the presence of God with a great fear, lest anything should happen to me within that presence which will prove too intolerably inconvenient when I shall come out again into my quote-unquote ordinary life. Have we ever risen from our knees in haste for God's will should become too unmistakable if we prayed longer? Are you avoiding God because you know that the more you understand of his love for you, the more it might require? It may even require you to change your dreams. It may require you to let go of your anger and your unforgiveness if you actually taste the forgiveness that Jesus has in the gospel. We're not beyond any of those crazy strategies. Fear of spiritual intimacy can come from lots of places. I think one of the other reasons that we don't live with this kind of joyful abandon is we try to kill our longings. And so we, make it, we try to make, make ourselves believe that we don't really need a treasure. That I'm content with sort of ordinary things. And again, you know, there's this great um, C.S. Lewis quote from The Way to Glory. You've probably heard this before. But the, the, what the gospel promises and offers is unbelievable. Listen to how he says this. If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, 
fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. And one of my favorite quotes from Woody Allen, one night he was being interviewed by Bob Costas, late at night I happened to catch this, and, and Bob Costas said, Woody, what do you believe in? And he simply said, I believe in the power of distraction. I know a lot of people, including myself, that practically I believe very strongly in the power of distraction. I don't like to be alone with God and alone with my thoughts. I'd much rather be entertained or distracted by something. Are you like that? When push comes to shove, do you want to focus and, and sit and, and, and just dive into the beauty that is Jesus? Or would you rather be distracted? Because you're not sure what would happen if you really saw him as the beauty that he really is. We're committed to safety. And I think that mean, is another reason, you know, that, that we don't really taste the kingdom as this great treasure. We're committed to safety, and that means not putting all of our eggs in one basket, right? And I think, you know, when you think about the, the culture we live in, the pluralistic, relativistic culture, um, it's really easy for you to sort of fall into this place of saying, well, you know, I, I don't want to, you know, Christianity may not be the only right religion, um, but I really do think that one of, the, one of the reasons that we find so little joy in Christianity is we've, we're refusing to really jump in with both feet. I was thinking about, about this. Think of it this way. Beginning a relationship with God, relationship with God does not begin with a lunch date. It begins with a marriage. Do you understand? That's a huge difference. And I think a lot of us are trying to like, take Jesus out for lunch get to know him, make sure he's okay. That's not, that's not what the gospel says. The gospel says it begins with a marriage. Whoa. If you're in this thing, you're in it, right? It actually begins with a divorce. Paul in Romans 7 says that first God comes and divorces us from Adam, from our first husband. And it's a good thing because Adam threatens us, but once he's dead, then he can no longer threaten us. The other thing is once he's dead, you can no longer hope for anything from him. So if you're a Christian, you've been, you've been made dead to Adam. You've been made alive in Christ, and he's married himself to you. So, so you see, like if you're afraid of putting all your eggs in one basket and you're a Christian, all you're doing is missing out on experiencing the love that God has for you. Because he only knows one way to love. And we saw it on the cross. He goes all the way right? I think um, if we think that the gospel is just this ordinary thing, it will produce a pretty ordinary, ordinary response and ordinary sacrifice. And listen to these words from Paul in uh, 2 Corinthians. I put this on your outline. It's from chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians. Just listen to these words. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay 
to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. Now, Paul writes that, and he thinks that's great. <laughs> See, here's the, here's the fascinating thing. He thinks that what he's described of what we have, the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ, means that this experience of being perplexed and crushed and given over to death is nothing compared to what we have. As a matter of fact, there's a place in Romans 8.18 where he says it even more clearly. He says, for I reckon, that means I've counted it up, I've taken stock of these two, two options, and I've re- I reckon, I've calculated that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Do you believe that? That they're not even worth comparing? Wow. Jesus, Jesus is beautiful. Do you, know, do you know how Jesus fits into this parable? Jesus is not just the beautiful one that we should be willing to give up everything for. But here's the profound truth. We don't recognize his beauty. Paul says in 2 Corinthians that until the Spirit comes into your life and opens your eyes, you can't even discern or understand spiritual things. This this parable doesn't work this way, where Jesus is saying, look, you should just recognize what's beautiful and sacrifice for it. Because the Bible clearly says that one of the biggest problems with us when, when, when mankind turned from God, one of the things that happened is our sense of what's beautiful was screwed up, royally screwed up, turned upside down. So that, as Isaiah 53 says, we did not consider him weighty or valuable or beautiful. But you know what? Jesus considered us weighty and valuable. Jesus considered you and me weighty and valuable. Even when we didn't even have eyes to see who he really is. I don't think we can even begin to get our minds around what it meant for Jesus to leave the right hand of God and come down and take on human flesh. Do you know that he began suffering from the moment he was born? I mean, he was circumcised at the, on the eighth day. He didn't need to be cut for his sin. It was a cleansing ritual, you know, circumcision. He didn't need to be cut. He was cut. He was a man of sorrows. His suffering didn't begin at the cross. His suffering overtook him every time he looked at the world that he had made and saw how it wasn't supposed to be like this. And he lived that way for 33 years. He said he had nowhere to lay his heads. Even the birds and the foxes have a place to call home. But I have nowhere to call my head, my, my, lay my head. He said, I have friends, but my friends betray me with a kiss. And when I plead with them, would you just stay awake with me and pray with me and watch with me? They fall asleep. He wakes them up, he asks them again, they fall asleep again. 
right? Jesus took on all that. Jesus gave up everything, everything, so that he could possess you and not lose you. My friend Scott Rowley likes to say, Jesus would rather die than live without you. Who else do you know like that? Right? Jesus, think of what Jesus liquidated for you. And then ask yourself, why am I trying to hold on to this stuff? See, I think one of the key things is we just don't trust that Jesus has our best interests in heart. But when you look at what he gave up, how can you still believe that? How can I still believe that? There's that great old hymn, Nothing But the Blood of Jesus. It's got this line, Would you be free from your pettiness and pride? There's power in the blood. There certainly is. Because when you look at the blood of Christ, all the things that you're trying to hold on to, what are they but pettiness and pride? Why wouldn't we run to Jesus and say, take what you want? You know, C.S. Lewis has this great illustration about, you know, we think we can invite Jesus into our heart and, and, and we kind of feel like, I think even that language makes us feel like we're in control. But he says, you know, the problem with inviting Jesus into your heart and asking him to move in is he pretty soon decides he needs to do some major remodeling and moving around the furniture and knocking out a wall here and knocking out a wall there. And, and we resist that. But how do we fight against that resistance? By focusing on what he gave up. He doesn't just love to, to mess you up. He died for the same reason that he interrupts your life. Like finding a great treasure that changes everything. It's because he loves you. And he knows what he made you to be and what you can be. And what he's committed to making you into. And you know, I'll just say this last thing. If you think that you can get a relationship with this God who loves like this by doing certain things, please don't insult him. Please don't insult him that way. To think that I can get him on my good side if I just tweak my life a little bit here, if I give up this little thing over here. See, it won't matter. If you haven't thrown yourself upon the mercy of God, and said, I have nothing to offer to you except unbelief and sin. If you haven't thrown yourself on the mercy of God, believe me, it won't matter what else you've sacrificed. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of God is like someone who finds a treasure and then they recognize what it is, they joyfully sell everything that they have. That's what it means to come into a relationship with God. And it's hard to believe that that treasure really is a treasure. Believe me, one of the reasons we read the Bible, one of the reasons we gather together and sing songs and, and pray and sit under God's word is to be reminded again what is really true. That Jesus lived and died for sinners. That he really did love us that much so that he could possess us. And that's the only thing that really melts your heart, right? And we need it over and over and over again because you're going to walk out of here tonight and you're going to sin. And when you sin, 
What that means is you've forgotten that Jesus is more weighty and more valuable than what other people think about you or your fear or whatever it is that tempts you and tempts me. And so what we need constantly is to be reminded of this truth, a simple truth, but so profound. The kingdom of God is like a treasure that when you find it, you would joyfully sell everything you have. And if it doesn't appear that way to you tonight, then pray that the Spirit would open your eyes to reality. These are not just nice little spiritual ideas. This is reality. This is more true than anything you feel. And pray that the Spirit would convince you. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we do thank you that you are such a great treasure. And we thank you that you gave up everything for us. And I pray that the reality of that would haunt us. Haunt us into loving you and to turning from all those other things that vie for our heart's affection. May we honor you and glorify you in the things that we find beautiful. And may you do that through the work of your spirit for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.